Hi, I'm Ruby Kankani, and welcome to this latest edition of Bank to Rights, the podcast for multimedia journalism students and staff at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my fellow student. Hi, I'm Zara Gallimore, and we're also joined in the studio by one of our journalism tutors, Pete Murray. Hi, Pete. Hi, Zara. Hi, Ruby. Hi there. Um, so what's coming up today? Listeners may be aware of the killing last month of an MMU business management student, Luke O'Connor, who died in hospital after being stabbed in the Fallowfield district of South Manchester. We wanted to look at how his death and the police investigation was covered here by our own journalism students and the pressures that put on them. And we'll also be speaking later to the chair of the Justice Select Committee, Sir Bob Neill MP, about their report released this month into what they say is the failure of the justice system to support public understanding of the courts and whether digital news outlets are stepping in to fill the gap. Cut to the chase, and you won't be surprised to hear that they think the answer is no. We'll be hearing from Sir Bob in a moment, but first you may have seen and heard about the arrests of photographers and video journalists by Hertfordshire Police as they were covering the Just Stop Oil protests on the M25 motorway. One of them, Rich Felgate, kept his camera running and posted footage on Twitter as officers handcuffed him and photographer Tom Bowles, preventing them from covering the protest from a public footbridge overlooking the motorway. At the moment, you're under arrest. So why? Can I just tell you? Okay, I'm a press, I'm a member of the press. Can I give you two minutes? Can I show you my press card? Sorry, officer, you you can't arrest me. I'm here as a member of the press. You only need some time, Yeah, you can be detained in six months on a pace. What? Criminal? Section four, yep. All right, my book. You are currently detained. I'm quite obviously a member of the press, you know, in the middle of the camera, it's a public place. Listen, it's only a search. Why are you searching me? Why are you searching for items of registration? Why are you handcuffing me if you're just searching? You have to be told your camera so it doesn't get damaged so you don't drop it. I'd quite like to keep hold of it myself. Well, you're going to be putting handcuffs, so... I don't want that to get damaged. Right, you, you, can, you can search me if you really want, but I don't really want to just give you my camera. No, no I appreciate that, but you're going back to the handcuffs. So, so the camera's going to get damaged, you have me to take that off of you. Um, <laughs> probably don't have much choice, do I? Not really, but we're just all going to camera, mate. As we came into the studio to record today, that clip had been viewed more than two million times on Twitter. Tom Bowles later said, on Twitter that police woke his wife and daughter at 11 o'clock that night to search his house. He finally got back home after three in the morning. Pete, tell us more about what we're hearing on that clip. Well, some of the things you can hear is that both of them saying that we got press accreditation, we're in a public place. So the the protest itself was happening on a kind of overhead gantry um, on the motorway. And these guys were on a a public road and a road bridge that went across the motorway. So they weren't taking part in the protest. They had their press cards with them. Um, and you can hear the handcuffs clicking on. You can hear one of the police officers saying, I'm arresting you in section one, section one of PACE. PACE is the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. And section one says that a police officer is entitled to arrest somebody on suspicion of creating a public nuisance or conspiracy or conspiracy to be involved in 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 that like blocking the highway or things like that and so they're saying we're not we're not part of the protest they were quite clearly above the protest away from it uh, and so on nevertheless the, the police arrested them 
it wasn't just um, both of them though. Um, also, the LBC reporter, um, Charlotte Lynch, was arrested. She gave an account to uh, Nick Ferrari of LBC about what went on. I'd been there for around 45 minutes uh, before two male officers uh, approached me and questioned what I was doing as I was taking pictures and videos of the protester. I was on a road bridge over the motorway. So this is a public uh, area, yes. you're not on private property? No, public okay. area, okay. road bridge over the motorway, well clear of the demonstration. I was not down on the motorway. I wasn't with the protester. Uh, I immediately showed these officers my press card and explained I worked for LBC, which is owned by Global, the Global logo on my press card uh, and I explained I was there reporting uh, on the protest. They questioned how I got there. I said, in a car. They asked how I knew to be there. I said, Just Stop Oil had put on their social media the evening prior uh, a warning to drivers that they'd be blocking the M25 again. Now, no sooner had I said that, and they mustn't have even spoken to me for two minutes, uh, handcuffs were banged onto my uh, hand, first my left hand, and I went to grab my phone with my right hand, which was immediately snatched away. And I was arrested for on suspicion uh, of conspiracy to commit a public nuisance. Um, of course, my rights were read to me. So at that point, I kept my mouth shut because I knew that whatever uh, I said uh, could be held against me. Um, and that was it. I was searched on the side of the road. A female officer then came, searched me um, on the side of the road. All of my devices were taken away uh, and I was put into a custody van. And from there, she was taken to Stevenage Police Station, she says. DNA swabs were taken. She was fingerprinted and then she was put in a cell for five hours. After that, she was released with the phrase that the police used, no further action. So all three of them, no further action was taken against them. On Twitter, she describes it all as absolutely terrifying. And terrifying, she says, also for what it means for press freedom. Now, everyone from the National Union of Journalists and the British Press Photographers Association to the Society of Editors have condemned the action by Hertfordshire Police, saying accredited journalists should be able to work freely without fear of arrest. And on the face of it, it all appears that the events run almost word for word against the guidelines from the College of Policing. Because they say officers have no power or moral responsibility to stop journalists filming or reporting from events of this kind from a safe vantage point, which they say they were they were at. Now, in response, Hertfordshire Police said they recognised the concerns and they'd asked another police force to investigate their approach to what a statement described as challenging circumstances. And they also said that a, a, another a police officer was injured during that protest separately on the M25. Chief Constable Charlie Hall says additional measures are now in place to ensure what he calls legitimate media and that they're able to do their job. Now, that's not quite how the Forces Police and Crime Commissioner, David Lloyd, sees it, though. He told LBC he thought that the force had got it wrong by arresting journalists. There was no reason, he said, no reason to arrest them. The issues also come up in the House of Commons with the Lib Dem MP for St Albans, Daisy Cooper, asking the Deputy Speaker, De Nigel Evans, whether or how the Home Secretary could make an urgent statement to the House. I think the House uh, will agree with me that the freedom of the press is of paramount importance to a free and fair society. I was utterly appalled to see that LBC journalist Charlotte Lynch being arrested by Hertfordshire Police yesterday whilst covering the Just Stop Oil protests on the M25 in my constituency, whilst other journalists were also detained covering separate similar protests in Hertfordshire. Once being questioned, uh, whilst being questioned by the police, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, Ms Lynch offered her press badge immediately. But within two minutes, she was handcuffed, 
Her phone was snatched away, she was taken to a police station and accused of conspiracy to commit a public nuisance. She was fingerprinted, photographed and had DNA samples taken. Now, I have written to Hertfordshire Police today um, and they have now put out a statement. They have said that they have uh, requested an independent force to examine their approach to identify some learnings and have taken some additional measures. In other words, nothing to see here. So, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, um, we are not an authoritarian state. The ability of journalists to do their job unhindered is a vital part of our democracy. So, given the severity of these incidences and the fact that Parliament is going into recess tomorrow, could you please give me some advice, Mr Deputy Speaker, as to how the House may be able to summon the Home Secretary to this place for her to give a statement offering an explanation, an apology and a reassurance that this will never happen again? I'd like to thank the Honourable Member for giving uh, notice of her point of order. I have not had any indication from the Home Secretary that they are coming here uh, today to make any statements or um, uh, to make a statement and there again the Treasury bench will have heard the points that she has raised and I know that uh, she will not leave it there and will continue to pursue it. I can't clearly comment on any policing decisions and actions which are not a matter for the Chair. Now the photographer meanwhile Tom Bowles he's indicated he's considering legal action against the police for wrongful arrest and so it really looks like the story's got a long way to go yet. Meanwhile Just Stop Oil protests are continuing as we're recording today and that's despite pressure from both Suella Braverman Home Secretary and Labour's Keir Starmer for the police to clamp down hard on the protesters. Thanks Pete. We turn now to the murder last month of the MMU student Luke O'Connor. You will no doubt have heard how his family paid tribute to a 19-year-old they described as a gentle giant who loved music and football. A man has appeared in court charged with his murder. We're here in the newsroom today at MMU with Joe Ward and Callum Scott from the Northern Quota who were covering the events and the police investigation in Fallowfield. Hi Joe and hi Callum. How you doing, UK? Hi. Joe, you were a part of the reporting team covering this. What was your role? So essentially, um, me and Cal sort of picked up on um, the incident a few days after it happened. Cal was there, uh, there at the scene uh, doing, taking some photographs, but we looked at um, how to report it over uh, a podcast, which was a very sensitive thing to talk about. Uh, it was quite difficult, particularly knowing it was a student at the university that we attend as well. So, yeah, it was... It was quite weird. It was something that I'd never experienced before in some way that we had to tread very lightly of what we can and can't say. Um, but, yeah, it was quite difficult to not let your emotions get in the way when covering something like that. And so, Callum, you were kind of on the spot in Fallowfield, one of the first people there, actually, I believe. How did you kind of react to it? How You know, you knew that you were reporting on the on the death of a student. I think that carries with it an element that the other journalists that arrived didn't really have because I was I felt like I was speaking maybe for people my age that don't maybe don't watch the news or don't listen to the radio it's like I'm putting these things on social media and people are starting to learn who it is and the fact that you went to our uni and um, it was just really difficult and again like Joe said I just had to tread so so carefully on what I was putting out what I was saying about it and um, even with the pictures, what, what the content was. And there's a, one of the things this has highlighted is the kind of student safety in Fallowfield and also wider issues about knife crime, yeah? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, 
it's really bizarre, but just I remember the night before the incident actually saying how um, sort of safe I felt around where I lived. And within the space of 24 hours, it completely flipped on its head. And I mean, I know myself and other people around me didn't really want to go out to bars or go out late at night, especially on their own after that. Um, and yeah, it sort of just, like you said, highlights an issue that I think we all know is there, but when it, when it you can almost see yourself in that situation, it really does hit home and sort of, um, yeah, br brings it to light, I guess. And Zara, just from your point of view, watching all of this at the time, of the, there obviously added issues for young women in, in that part of the city as well. Yeah, I mean, when I used to live in Fallowfield, my biggest concern at the time was just not getting robbed. Like That was the main issue because it's a student area. But as a woman, it's like when I finish work, I get the bus, I don't walk home because I don't feel safe. Like in general, there's a, it's just not like I already get someone to walk me home from like to the bus stop because it's just I don't feel comfortable. And um, it's just it's a very strange feeling because I, not even a few years ago, I'd walk around town late at night and I didn't feel as bad as I do now. Like it definitely feels like it's gotten a lot worse over the past few years. Now, regular listeners to Bag to Rights will know that alongside all the personal safety issues and the tragic death, there are tight legal restrictions around what we're allowed to say when a case is active. That's the term that they use in the Contempt of Court Act. I've been hearing more about this from media law lecturer here at MMU, Dave Porter. Going back to basics, once a case is active, the Contempt of Court Act says uh, you we're not allowed to publish anything which causes a substantial risk of serious prejudice to a case or which causes an impediment to the administration of justice. And it's the kind of one key phrase we always uh, drill into students. You know, it's one of those thresholds. So um, as soon as the case is active, in this case, there has been uh, a charge. Um, but the key defence, really, for journalists and the media is Section 5. Now, Section 5 is there to allow the media to talk about any general issue, whether that's uh, knife crime or rape or trafficking or, you know, infant, um, assisted dying, whatever. So obviously we, the law recognises that we as journalists would want to discuss and err and debate and be a platform and a forum for discussions generally. So I've, we've got here the current edition of McNay's, um, 26th edition, that's the one where Shan Harrison is alongside Mark Hanna, so that's the one people should be looking at. And um, it's page 328, just if you're, if you're reading, if you're listening along with us um, and you've got a copy of McNay's open, page 328. So section 5 reads, a publication made as a part of a discussion in good faith on public affairs or other matters of general public interest is not to be treated as a contempt of court under the strict liability rule if the risk of impediment or prejudice to particular legal proceedings is merely incidental to the discussion. Incidental being, being the key phrase, and uh, I mean, I've under, understood it to mean passing reference. It means a one line, you know, um, probably not even name of the person, just saying that this week a, a person's been charged with X, Y, and Z. And what it does is set up for the reader the uh, reason why you're discussing a particular topic. But go no further than one line, I would say. Interestingly, McNay's, uh the guidance is actually don't make any reference, full stop. But so I suppose ultimately the the decider is you know would it, would you get uh, get a letter from the AG or how does it work in practice? 
I think this week, what was interesting is we, following the incident, you know, we had the mayor of uh, Manchester, Andy Burnham, having a, a radio discussion about safety in the city and student safety. And that was a generic, general discussion. And that would come safely under the rubric of Section 5. So it, it's a, And, of course, we know why we're talking about it. In some ways, we, don't, we wouldn't even have to mention the incident itself because everyone knows why we're discussing um, A, student safety, and B, you know, uh, potential knife crime. So that's a really good example of the media using the Section 5 defence to not talk about the case, not talk about an active case, but talk about an issue of public safety. Yeah, and interestingly, McNeese in that little section on Section 5, um, they finish up by, by referring to subjudice, because very often people say, oh, of course, I can't talk about that because it's subjudice. And actually, what Section 5 says is you can talk about it. Yeah, and I think subjudice is one of those, uh, as you say, catch-all phrases, which sometimes press offices use. Uh, we can't talk about a, a case. Uh, and a subjudice just means a case has been lodged. It doesn't. It's completely different to active, and it's it's not a doesn't really come under the contempt of court act. So actually, it's a good point for journalists not to be or student journalists not to be put off by somebody saying it's subjudice. That might just be you know a civil case has been listed. Uh, it has no bearing real on prejudice. We we operate under the contempt of court act. We understand what the contempt rules are. Subjudice is a bit of a misnomer, um, but it's interesting. It's, but it's in there. But I think with a case where there is uh, a case is active and obviously the person has been charged or, or arrested, uh, and we do want to discuss, there will be wider issues coming out of any case. Uh, and it's quite right that we should, you know, have the freedom to, uh, as a media, to discuss any issue. Section five gives us that sort of safety blanket, that protection to say um, you can do this as long as reference is incidental. Maybe as McNeese says, don't make any reference. Uh, and keep your reports well apart, for example, if you're in a newspaper. Yeah. So it's always as well um, for, for students, go back, get, you know, go and have a look at the Act, read the Act in detail, and of course, you know, read McNay's um, um, chapter, chapter 19 it is in this current edition, um, because in amongst there, they, they go all the way back to um, the Sunday Times thalidomide investigation and Harold Evans taking the case to the uh, European Court and eventually winning, and that's what led to the change in the Act yeah. in 1981, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. I mean, it's a classic case which we always tell students to look out for. I mean, there have been in, in more interesting cases recently, not more interesting, more recent. I mean, last year, GB News, a presenter, was talking about, uh, made comment about the uh, Edward Colston case, and they were severely wrapped by the judge. And, of course, the worst thing that happened there is that, A, it wasn't incidental, and, B, it was a comment on an, a case which has been, a trial which has been heard at the time. So the risk of prejudice is heightened. Um, you know, we've all heard of the fade factor. So um, that was where Section 5 wouldn't work. It wasn't an incidental discussion, and it, it was a direct sort of comment upon an ongoing case, a bit like the Rod Little case, if you remember from a few years ago, um, where again, you felt like it might be a Section 5 defence, but he, he made comments. Um, I'm trying to remember the case actually off the top of my head. But we all know the case of Rod Riddle, and uh, you can't use the defence if you're basically, especially while a case is, being, is going through the courts, and you start making comments about a particular case, um, that's never going to wash. So, you know, it's a good defence, but understand its limits. Dave, thanks very much. We'll put some links to those stories um, into the show notes so people can have a look at that. But uh, Dave Porter, thanks very much indeed for coming back on Bang to Rights. It's great to have you back on. Thank you. Cheers, Pete. Thanks, Pete. And thanks to Dave.
A 19-year-old man has been remanded in custody, charged with the murder of Luke O'Connor. His next appearance at Manchester Crown Court is scheduled for April next year. A reminder that you're listening to the Bang to Rights podcast from journalism students and staff at Manchester Metropolitan University. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you'll also find us on SoundCloud at MMU Northern Quota. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. You can also keep up to date on all the news, sport, entertainment, politics and more if you visit the Northern Quota website, search for thenorthernquota.org. Now, it's more than a year since the head of the family courts in England and Wales said that they should be more open to media scrutiny. The courts currently operate almost entirely behind closed doors. Sir Andrew McFarlane said that needed to be a change what he called a period of accelerated change. Campaigners for change say it can't come soon enough because life-changing decisions from mothers' access to their own newborn children to the deprivation of children's liberty are being made in secret. The investigative journalist Louise Tickle has been working for eight years to try to improve access to the family courts. Together with Basha Cummings from Tortoise Media, she uncovered the story about the former Conservative MP Andrew Griffiths that had raped his wife Kate. She supported the request from Tortoise and the Press Association for details to finally be published of the family court hearing where these findings emerged. Both Louise and Basher took part in a thinking held by Tortoise last week. Louise says the current system is overwhelmingly stacked against open justice and so she welcomes the call from MPs this month for significant and urgent change. For people who are not familiar with family courts, they might say, well, why is it hidden and unaccountable? And that is essentially because everything that happens in family courts takes place in private, and to all intents and purposes, that means in secret. Although every family lawyer and judge I have ever spoken to recoils in horror at the idea that they are presiding over secret justice. Um, In fact, that is effectively what it is. Though journalists who have an accredited press card are allowed to go and observe family courts, we can't report any of the detail of what we see during that court case um, or after it unless we get permission from the judge. The interesting thing to me is, of course, the process, not just the outcome, because it is in the process and how that unfolds that outcomes are decided. Um, That that goes even if we anonymise everyone in the case, anonymity will not save you as a reporter reporting on family courts. Um, And if we do, it's a contempt, punishable by a fine or jail. And that is extremely chilling, not just to journalists wanting to go along, but to editors, to lawyers, to insurers. Basically, everybody is petrified. Basha Cummings from Tortoise Media worked with Louise Tickle on the Griffiths case, and she said it was a real eye-opener for her. It felt like at every stage, we were being challenged to think about what is the public interest in this case and be really clear about that because the culture tells you this is private. This isn't something that you should be listening to, you shouldn't be thinking about publishing. And it really does chip away at your resolve to to think, are we doing the right thing here? And with Griffiths, I think it was a very clear case to say this is a person who was in a position of power who was found to the civil standard not a criminal standard to have abused his wife and it felt like perhaps a case going through a family court where the public interest 
was much more black and white than I can imagine it is in other cases. So it it was, I think, for us, um, not a difficult equation to think, okay, this this is a serious story and Louise needs our support. Also taking part in the discussion was the lawyer Pia Sama. She's the editorial legal director at Times Newspapers. We're going to play quite a long clip from the event here because she explains just how complicated this area of law is for everyone who's involved. The one area where all the lawyers and my team will say to a journalist, you know, you can't report from the family courts. Um, and that's the starting point because it is, it is a fact. You, you can't. It's only exceptions where you can get in. So, you know, that must be a huge deterrent to know that that's the answer that you're going to get. And I'm sure it puts people off from even looking at half the stories. Um, but as I say, that, it's the wrong starting point. And that's the problem that we've got um, because it's contrary to, just to go back to basic principles, the principle of open justice, which is that, you know, you must, justice must, must be seen to be done. Um, and there's you know, the, the old adages that are quoted in so many cases, particularly in the, the central case on open justice, which is Scott and Scott, is that publicity is the very soul of justice, which is a quote from Jeremy Bentham. And it's just, it is at the heart of everything that happens through the court system. But it doesn't happen in the family courts. And the principles behind it are, to, to look at the other side of the coin, valuable and valid um, a lot of them are to protect the interests of children and I don't think anyone would want to thwart that principle but it's the way it's used as a cloak as a veil for embarrassment and the way that it closes the door to scrutiny which is why I think your work on Griffiths was just so so significant and what what you were saying Basher about the public interest because what happens in in the family courts is a starting point is you can attend but you can't report and it's a contempt to report under Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act. There's also anonymity, which is statutory under the Children's Act. So you've got these two immediate bars. So you've got to apply to lift those bars or start to talk to the, to the judge about how you do that. And only if you get to that stage will the judge then exercise his or her discretion to weigh up the public interest versus the privacy rights in that whole setup. So it's not just the privacy rights of the children, it's just the starting point is this is private. Many thanks to Tortoise Media for allowing us to use the audio from that thinking. You'll find the link to Tortoise in this week's show notes, as well as links to coverage of the Griffiths case. Joining us now on Bang to Rights is Sir Bob Neill, MP, who's chair of the Justice Select Committee in the House of Commons. Sir Bob, thanks for coming on the podcast. Your committee is just... Pleasure, very happy to do it. Your committee has just published a report that covers exactly this issue. How important is it for you that the members of the public do see more of what goes on in the family courts? Well, our committee thought it was really important because, uh, as you said at the beginning of the the piece, uh, these are decisions which have a real impact upon people's lives. They're obviously important to the individual parties concerned, but there is also a public interest in this as well when we're talking about the, the welfare of children and so on. So ensuring that there is transparency and therefore consistency in approach is important. Um, We sort of recognise that there's an issue uh, about uh, sometimes the need to protect the identity of of children and other vulnerable people in what are often quite sensitive cases. But we don't think that's a reason for the level of secrecy which there is at the moment. And we think that there are sensible ways in which that should be changed. 
Thanks, Bob. And can I ask, what has been the effect of lockdown as, um, and in particular, the digital only access to the justice system? Well, I think that's it's created a, quite a number of, of issues, uh, some good and some bad. I mean, it, it certainly was important that we were able during lockdown to, to use digital courts to get cases heard. You know, it's a separate uh, area of concern we have about the length of time it takes to get family cases heard in many parts of the country. And so having digital hearings was better than nothing from that point of view. Uh, but I do, do think it raised issues as to the quality of, of the representation. Uh, we actually sat in on some virtual hearings uh, and you had a real concern sometimes of whether you're dealing with sensitive issues. And you've got both parties possibly still sharing the same house. Um, how freely could people actually give evidence under those circumstances? How seriously, I'm afraid, sometimes were people whose lifestyles were pretty chaotic taking uh, the issues. And I think a number of the judges that we talked to had real concerns about it. Well, there was a, there was a practical necessity. Uh, we, we worried about that becoming too much the norm. And of course, very difficult then uh, for journalists and you know, people with a legitimate public interest to be aware of what was happening in those court hearings. And that's one of our recommendations, uh, that there should be much more uh, information in the court lists. So the journalists, because you know, there's an issue with shortage of court reporters, but journalists ought to be able to pick out more easily, therefore, which are the ones that they can devote their limited resources to, to covering where there's a broader public interest that might arise. Now, there is going to be this this trial, isn't there, of, of, in three courts in, in uh, Bristol, Carlisle, and I think one other city. Are, how hopeful are you that that might result in the kinds of changes and, and better access that you're talking about in the report? Well, we certainly support the trial and uh, mm -hmm. those three pilots, and we'll, we'll probably want to return uh, to the topic once we've uh, seen the outcomes uh, of those pilots. But, but it is important that we do that, and um, as it's important, I think, that we should review uh, the way that Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act 1960 works, because that's um, the statutory provision at the moment that is used almost as a blanket um, uh, a ban on, on, on reporting, uh, and we think that's not right. And I'm glad, I was pleased when the president of the Family Division, Sir Andrew McFarlane, gave evidence to us that he was sort of saying, yes, that, that needs to change, and he's in favour of opening up. So, so we're with them on that. So I think the, um, the, the pilots are a good idea, a good step forward. The only two caveats I think I'd make are perhaps this, that um, that does depend upon the availability of good quality reporters. And it's a sad fact that you and I will remember the way court reporting has declined. Um, uh, over the years from when I started as a practitioner um, in, in all the jurisdictions. Um, and that's certainly true in family as well. So we have to make sure that people are prepared to cover it. But we've equally got to make it easier. They know in advance with the listing information what's worth covering, uh, whether they should devote the things. And maybe the other bit we, we did say is that the courts, they're going to do it, have got to put a bit of resource into it. Um, because you may, for example, sometimes later come onto it and analyze, uh, anonymize judgments and so on. Um, but provided there's, there's the money is put behind it, we think it's a step, a step in the right direction. I, I think listening to that tortoise event last week, we, we, you get the impression, A, that um, journalists like Louise Tickle and, and others, yeah. and P.S. Armour as well, that both the lawyers and the journalists take the, the public interest duty very seriously, but yeah. they're also aware that access to those documents beforehand will allow them to make a case to their editor, for example, to say, look, this is yeah. a case that we believe we can cover over a sufficiently short period of time, and also that there is public interest in it. I think that's right, and that's 
actually brings us on to this other issue, isn't it, which is the way we're moving towards digitalization uh, of most court documents, which is, again, in itself is a good thing. And provided we can set up, I think, systems of proper systems of accreditation um, and then secure access in advance to things like the skeleton arguments uh, and the reports that ought to give us an opportunity if it's done properly to enable them, as you rightly say, to make their case to their editors that this is something that raises an important public interest issue. So you've got to get all those bits joined together. I think that's what, what, what we're saying. Definitely. And so, um, Bob, you mentioned, um, well, the committee actually recommends uh, media access to a single digital portal for court yeah. documents and proceedings. Can you tell us a bit more about, about that? Yeah, well, that's that's what we suggested, not purely in, in family uh, cases. Um, uh, as you're moving, for example, in crime, you're now moving towards what they call the common platform, um, where both prosecution and defence can, can upload the relevant documents from the court. The, the magistrates or the Crown Court judge have access to it. Um, it shouldn't be too difficult to adapt the technology to enable accredited reporters uh, and bloggers to have access to those. Um, we have a concern about the slowness of the rollout of um, modern technology in the civil courts. I mean, the, the, the county court, for example, where you're dealing with you know, possession actions, people's homes, quite important money claims, especially for small businesses, that's still all virtually on paper. Now, the family courts got got better than that, um, but it's somewhere in the middle, I think, at the moment. Um, but that's, that's how we see that as the opportunity, because if the parties are uploading for the court, then you ought to be able to put in a security filter to enable a, a accredited um, a journalist to, to, to get in as well. Um, so, Bob, the single justice procedure has been subject to much criticism by MPs, open justice campaigners and journalists for some time. What yeah. steps do does the committee think that the judiciary needs to take to make the procedure more transparent? Yeah, I'm, I'm, we, we, we do think there's a, there's a concern there. Um, what we do think is uh, that, um, at the very least, um, accepting that there is a bit of an issue around... Um, efficiency, and it's a trade-off sometimes between efficiency uh, and uh, openness. Um, interestingly, you probably know um, the Magistrates Association themselves have raised concerns over it and felt that uh, the, the, the Courts and Tribunal Service weren't doing enough. Um, they think there should be, um, at the moment, just publishing the outcomes isn't sufficient. Um, what we probably do need is, again, um, better listing information, so, again, you are publishing online uh, the cases that are going to be heard under the single justice procedure, just as you might if they were being held in open court. Uh, and uh, I would hope also then you would have decisions published similarly in that fashion immediately after uh, the result. Um, and uh, I mean, Tristan Kirk, who's got a well-known journalist, as you know from the Evening Standard, made a suggestion to us. Uh, that the notices of prosecution should be disclosed automatically, uh, along with the uh, regular um, uh, listings. Um, so I think that would be all a step forward. Uh, and uh, you'll notice also, I think, the Chartered Institute of Journalists raised some concerns uh, about that too. So I think there's a danger that we swung too far in terms of expediency as opposed to public scrutiny. And just, it's not rocket science that has to be done to make it much more readily available. <laughs> And do you, do, you, do you get the impression, I mean, you're, you're, you're in the House of Commons, you're, you're not a journalist, but you, you, know, you know the law well enough. Do you get the impression that there is a mood to, to try to move towards greater transparency across the judicial system right now? 
I think broadly there is. I mean, certainly in the family side, Sir Andrew McFarlane has really championed this. Yes. Um, and and you know, it's great that he, as president of the uh, of the family board, is, is doing that. Um, I think, too, the, as I said, I was struck that the Magistrates Association themselves were raising these concerns, and they were saying, actually, that public confidence uh, in the lay magistracy system actually is dependent upon public scrutiny. Um, so I think that's important too. Where I think there may be an issue sometimes is with the respect some of the perhaps the district judges uh, and others um, who may not be aware. Actually, we found sometimes in in the county court, people were judges weren't aware of the rights that journalists and reporters have to attend uh, and hear proceedings. For example, being excluded from possession cases uh, and so on, where there isn't a, a sound legal ground for that. And that's surprising uh, that, that the, sort of the bench handbook doesn't uh, more prominently flag up to maybe part-time judges, you know, just call them the fee-paid judges use nowadays, what the rights of journalists are. So we think that ought to be changed and improved as well. Just overnight, um, we've had the, the Society of Editors has given a um, press freedom awards to the initiative of allowing yeah. Crown, uh, allowing cameras in Crown Court. Yeah. And we've had a judgment today, actually, a, a sentencing yeah. decision today that appeared on Sky News. And then they, they also gave an award to the Press Association, particularly, I think, to Brian Farmer from the Press Association, mm. for their work over access mm. to the family courts and then the wider judicial system. Yeah. I mean, do you think, the, are these an indication of maybe that, that we are moving forward a little bit more than, than previous years? I think we are, and um, the Lord Chief Justice uh, gave evidence to our committee on Tuesday of this week, and I actually very much welcomed the fact that Lord Burnett was uh, supportive of, of the televising of sentencing remarks in, you know, court cases of, you know, real public significance. Um, I had the pleasure, actually, of uh, going to the Old Bailey on Monday and, and meeting with uh, Judge Sarah Munro, who did, who did, I think, probably the first yes. of those televised cases. So I think there's clear willingness now from the senior judiciary to do that. Um, the one bit I think we've got to think about is sometimes, because sentencing has become much more technically complex, um, just the rules around it, it takes very often longer now um, to go through the sentencing uh, hearing uh, than it did before. And my one concern we've got to watch out for is that you don't have people plucking the sound bites uh, out, out of the judge's sentence. Which, of course, is exactly what we want to do on a podcast. <laughs> exactly, like this, isn't inevitably, it? and it's getting that is that tension right. You want you want the good, the, the catchy bits, uh, but sometimes you, it's necessary to think how do you then get the context uh, as to why the, the judge has come to those conclusions. Maybe it's also a challenge for judges in the way they uh, um, write the sentencing remarks, yeah. uh, and that's probably going to be a bit more work for them. I mean, that was what was a point actually that the Lord Chief made to us. Generally, was that for example in anonymizer in the family court when you're anonymising judgments. There's quite a bit of extra work goes into it. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. But uh, again, we're just saying you're going to have to recognise that and give it, when you're doing the listing and the amount of time that judges are expected to, to spend, give them the space to do that. And it may require that the judge has a bit more time to, to write down in advance the sentencing remarks so it can be got into um, you know, a more manageable and digestible form. OK. Um, so, Bob, thanks very much. Unless you guys have got any other questions, no? No, that's no. it. Thank you so yeah, much, thank Bob. Thank you very much. It's very much appreciated. Well, a pleasure to do it. And it's, it's, it's a really good and interesting topic. And good, good luck with uh, with all the work that you're doing on it. And uh, very happy to, to, to see the final outcome and to keep in touch around it. I think yeah, it's, well, it's an important cause. Sir Bob Neal, MP, thank you so much. In other news, in case you weren't aware... November marks Islamophobia Awareness Month and this year's focus of tackling denial highlights just how much more we need to do 
um, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, in 2021, 79% of Conservative Party members believed that there is no problem with Islamophobia in the party, while one in three Britons saw Islam as a threat to British values. The media focuses too much on the negativity, but rarely are the positive contributions from Muslims around the UK shown in the same limelight. If you're interested and want to get involved, there is a Tackling Denial talk on 14th of November at 5.30pm at the University of Manchester Students' Union. Interesting stuff. I, I'm, and we'll, we'll put a link about that, um, Ruby, into the into the show notes. One of the one of the things that's interesting, I'm, we're discussing with the with the new first years about diversity in the industry, um, and I was looking at a survey that was done by Ofcom. They were looking at the um, black and Asian. Uh, journalists in in the in the wider industry and and the kind of the numbers strictly on the religious thing it was also quite interesting what Ofcom found was that about 50 percent of the population say that they have some religious belief or other of some kind um, but it's interesting among people working in journalism and the media about 30 percent say they have belief and so it I just wonder whether that's I don't know whether that is part of the whole issue that maybe there's less understanding among media types and among journalists of religion generally. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one issue. But one of the other, the, I mean, I guess the key thing about diversity is that although it's what Ofcom found and what other surveys are finding is that it is improving, um, it's still not quite where it should be. And so apparently at the moment, again, this is that Ofcom survey found that around about 14, 15% of people working in journalism at the minute, in broadcasting at any rate, come from a black or Asian family with that background. Um, and that's that's kind of close to the, the national average. But if you look at a place like Greater Manchester or London, and those are two places where a lot of journalists are employed, or Birmingham, the numbers are way, way higher. And so the proportion of, of black and Asian people living in those cities is nearer 25 or 30%. And so, although things might be improving, there's still quite a gap in terms of representation and diversity in the journalism workforce. Whether that has any impact on Islamophobia is, is a kind of different question, but I think it's we, we need to see some of these issues about coverage of Islamophobia and coverage of religion and coverage of ethnic diversity in the country kind of maybe in that light. Yeah, and it also begs the question, um, do people feel comfortable in those specific public sectors, such as um, newspapers or broadcasting? Um, do they feel comfortable enough to share their di uh, diverse backgrounds um, when they might be dismissed or, or might be um, unfairly treated as a result of that? Yeah, absolutely. And especially for entry level journalists coming in. I mean, and one of the other things that Ofcom says is that as you go higher up the, the pay scale and the responsibility scale, the numbers of, of, of women and uh, black or Asian people, journalists kind of begins to fall. And so at the top end of the, the industry, it's still kind of very pale and male. Um, and so that's going to feel quite intimidating and possibly threatening to people coming in. And Sarah, you mentioned something a little bit on a lighter note. Uh, I went to Castlefield Viaducts yesterday and it was just a great experience because I'm working on doing an article about hidden green spaces in Manchester. Um, the Mayfield Park opened up around the start of September 
And so I'm going to go to that one tomorrow, actually. But it's just nice because I think Manchester really could do with a lot of green spaces. It's very industrialised. And the great thing with the Castlefield Viaduct is that they kept a lot of the old stuff. So they kept, like, the graffiti that had been there. And they kept, like, the original structure. Yeah. Um, and uh, as, as people will know, as listeners will know, I was there with, with some of the, the second and third year undergrad students. We did a, the whole previous episode of Bang to Rights is from there. So people want to check out the, the layout and the sounds and, and the people involved in the Castlefield Viaduct do listen to to the last episode. But but just more generally, I think that I think Greater Manchester, we've got a wealth of these former industrial sites that, that are just kind of aching for redevelopment. And so there's the, the Wigan Flashes up in the north former uh, coal mining area and that's now been turned into a national bird reserve and there's in my neck of the woods in Salford as well there's quite a lot of these kind of former mining areas industrial areas that are being transformed and reopened and landscaped and stuff and they're they're great spaces for for kids and for families as well so yeah brilliant to go to brilliant to go to I especially love the fact that they have a a feedback section right at the end um, of the Castlefield viaduct um, kind of place and what they what some of the suggestions that we saw were not just uh bringing children in for education purposes but actually how much wildlife is coming back uh to to that area um which is just incredible especially now given how much climate change is is you know part of the discussion so yeah yeah Dimfter from the national trust who's the manager there she told us they've got foxes and everything running around there that's amazing it's amazing Yeah. yeah Thank you so much. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Northern Quota and also follow the discussion on legal things and mobile journalism on Bang to Rights on Twitter at RightsBang. Thanks for listening. Bang to Rights will be back on Spotify and Apple Podcasts in a couple of weeks. Do please subscribe and leave us a comment or a review. We'll speak to you soon.